Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. In this series we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. Having been liberated from their bondage in Egypt, the people of Israel must establish their own laws, culture and rituals. By these means, the community may control mimetic rivalry and avoid future mimetic crises like the one depicted in the Exodus narrative. We have seen this idea repeated throughout the narrative as the Lord urges Israel to follow his rules and statutes lest the plagues of Egypt fall upon them. The community must focus their desire upon the promised land and direct their rivalry towards the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, who become an obstacle to Israel's desire. The community may then become united around their shared hatred for the Canaanites. As Israel band together and purge their collective violence upon the Canaanites, they purge mimetic rivalry from their midst. But if Israel fail to focus their desire upon the promised land, these rivalries will manifest as internal squabbles and a spirit of apathy with regards to the Canaanite conquest. In fact, we see this phenomenon demonstrated throughout the book of Numbers as the people wander in the wilderness for 40 years and eventually die. Let's read on now from chapter 34 verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their Asharim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you shall take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of covenant. In the ancient Near East, covenants were made between nations. When one people group conquered another, they would commonly form a covenant agreement, almost like a contract, in which the conquered party pledged their loyalty to their new overlords. In return, the conquering overlords would promise peace and beneficence towards the conquered party. More or less, we see the same idea communicated here. The Lord promises to assist the community to conquer the land of Canaan by producing great miracles so long as the people demonstrate their loyalty by following his rules and statutes. The Lord forbids the community from making a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. There can be only one covenant because the people must be fully loyal to the Lord of Meretic rivalry if they are to defeat the Canaanites. 
They must not participate in Canaanite worship and culture, lest they begin to identify with the inhabitants of the land, which would cultivate feelings of empathy and mercy for them. These feelings may inspire the Israelites to cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, share with their sons, with their daughters, and their daughters with their sons, so that they could intermarry, intermingle, which would compromise their allegiance to the Lord. The community must rally around their Lord, their God. They must remain distinct from the inhabitants of the land. Later on in the Pentateuch, this distinction allows the writers of Deuteronomy to demonize the Canaanite worship, which helps inspire the Canaanite conquest by painting the land's inhabitants as immoral monsters. Notice this idea also that the Lord's name is jealous. He is a jealous God. This is the first time we've seen this. We've seen, my name is the Lord. I'm the identity God. But once the people enter Canaan, what identity does the Lord consume? The Lord consumes the idea and the identity of a jealous lover. You see, the people of Israel, all of a sudden, they have options. They have the Baals, they have the Asherim, and all the other gods of Canaan who they may choose to worship. All of a sudden, the Lord, the identity, mimetic rivalry God of Israel, becomes jealous. Remember, we always want what we can't have. The Lord of mimetic rivalry has had a monopoly over the Israelite worship in the wilderness. But now when the Israelites enter Canaan, there's a smorgasbord of options and the Israelite people will be tempted. They will be seduced by these gods, hence the language of whoring after these gods. As the Israelites turn their desire to the gods of Canaan, this only kindles more the desire for the Lord that they may worship him alone. And hence he becomes a jealous God through the power of mimetic rivalry. In the presence of other suitors, the Lord is consumed with jealousy as his desire for the Israelite people grows in intensity. With this desire also grows the Lord's hatred for the gods of Canaan, who he views as an obstacle to his desired object, the loyalty of the Israelite people. In his pursuit of this desired object, the Lord commands the destruction of the sacred Asherim and Canaanite altars. In this way, the Lord strives and strains for Israel's loyalty by destroying the opposition, these obstacles which command Israel's affection. Reading on now from verse 17. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At that time, the appointed time in the month of Abib, for the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your livestock, the firstborn of the cows and the sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. 
In ploughing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leaven, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank, and he wrote on the tablets of the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments. In this passage, we basically see some of the Ten Commandments reiterated and expanded. First, the Israelites were warned not to worship the gods of Canaan or make covenants with the Canaanite peoples. Second, the people are forbidden from making divine icons out of metal, much like the second commandment of the Decalogue, which forbids the construction of any graven images. Third, we see the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath rest repeated and expanded to include religious festivals. The prohibition of boiling a young goat in its mother's milk seems a bit random and is hard to fully explain. Probably the best explanation of this prohibition, suggested by scholars, is that this practice was a well-known Canaanite custom. By forbidding this practice, the Lord forbids the community from imitating yet another Canaanite practice with the goal of maintaining Israel's distinct identity. Remember that imitation and rivalry always accompany one another. The Israelites will inevitably imitate the inhabitants of the land as they engage in rivalry with them. The prohibitions against Canaanite worships and customs in this passage attempts to maintain Israel's distinct identity around which the people can rally. The attendance of all males at religious festivals prescribed in this passage helps unite male warriors, enabling them to band together and vent their rivalry outwards towards a common enemy. Notice that Moses is again on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. We saw this same pattern on Mount Sinai when Moses received the law written on two tablets of stone and the plans for the tabernacle's construction. Now in this passage, Moses must spend another 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain to again receive the law on stone tablets and prepare for the construction of the tabernacle. This 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the primitive sacred sets Moses apart from the rest of the community. Only Moses survives the fury of the primitive sacred to emerge unscathed. The 40 days and 40 nights remind us of the flood narrative in which Noah and his family alone survived the mimetic crisis. Moses also survives the mimetic crisis to bring law and order to his community. Moses becomes this type of superman, a god if you will, who alone can survive the fury of mimetic rivalry. 
Reading on now from verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he came down from the mountain. And Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out, and he would come out and he told the people of Israel what he was commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. In this passage, Moses' unique proximity to the Lord allows him to manifest the divine glow. Moses' radiant face is yet another sign pointing towards his deification. The community are afraid to come near Moses, just as they were afraid to approach the Lord's presence on Mount Sinai. Just as the tabernacle will veil the Lord's presence, so Moses must wear a veil over his face to conceal his glory from the people. Interestingly, after attending the Lord's presence, Moses would then deliver the divine message to the people before veiling his face. In this way, Moses incarnates the Lord's presence as he speaks to the people. Once a message has been delivered, Moses then veils his face, which allows him to function within the community without inspiring fear and perhaps even persecution. From a mimetic perspective, this image of Moses manifesting the divine glow after spending time in the Lord's presence is brilliant. We are told earlier in the narrative that Moses speaks to the Lord as a man speaks to his friend. As we know, friends imitate one another. This imitation allows them to join the same activities and share the same values. It's what keeps friendships together. As Moses spends more time communing with the Lord, he imitates the primitive sacred and eventually incarnates the Lord of mimetic rivalry and violence. From chapter 35, we see another command to observe the Sabbath, and then the construction of the tabernacle narrated in some detail. When all of its furniture and the priests are ritually consecrated to the Lord's servants, we are told that Moses finished the work. Let's pick up the story now in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. With its construction complete, 
the Lord's presence within the tabernacle is graphically depicted as a cloud which covers the tent. As we have seen previously, the cloud represents mimetic rivalry and violence, which is the potential to either lead Israel to defeat their enemies or to destroy the community within. The Lord's presence, depicted as a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, will lead the community through the wilderness, just as it led them out of Egypt. In other words, Mimetic desire and violence secured Israel's emancipation from Egypt by focusing the community's collective desire upon their freedom and a good land flowing with milk and honey. This desire prompted the community to band together and direct their violent impulses towards Pharaoh, who they see as the obstacle to their desire. With their freedom secured, the people must once again focus their desire upon the land of Canaan. To this end, the Lord of Mimetic rivalry will lead the people forward as they pursue this desired object. Interestingly, Moses is not able to enter the Lord's presence within the tabernacle as the priests alone are commissioned for the Lord's service. With this development, Aaron's priestly line become a substitute for Moses as they minister in the Lord's presence. In this way, the priesthood becomes the community's new scapegoat as they are sent into the heart of the primitive sacred on Israel's behalf. The tabernacle represents Israel's attempt to recreate the dangerous manifestation of the primitive sacred they saw on Mount Sinai. If the community can just contain the primitive sacred to the tabernacle, then maybe they can enjoy peace and order in their everyday lives. Of course, Israel cannot leave the primitive sacred behind on Mount Sinai because they need mimetic desire and violence to take possession of the land of Canaan. The community must learn to harness the violence of the primitive sacred for their good while controlling outbursts of emetic violence within the community. To this end, the priests serve in the tabernacle. As we continue throughout the Pentateuch, we shall see that the priest's role is to harness the primitive sacred's blessing while avoiding the curse it can bring. As we finish our study of the book of Exodus, I want to take a moment to reflect on some key things I've learned. First, I've realized that the Lord of Exodus represents mimetic rivalry and violence. This insight may help explain the problem of divine violence with which many struggle. If the Lord is truly the personification of mimetic rivalry, then any divine blessing must be secured through violence. Hence why Israel must violently destroy the Canaanites to secure the promised land. Second, Moses imitates the Lord of mimetic rivalry so perfectly that he becomes God to Pharaoh and his community. Moses is credited as the one who leads the people out of Egypt, who gives them the divine law, and who can enter the primitive sacred on the community's behalf. I think this idea of someone imitating the Lord and becoming themselves the incarnation of mimetic rivalry helps explain Israel's prohibition against graven images. Anyone can become consumed with mimetic rivalry, 
In the Exodus narrative, it is Moses who becomes the scapegoat leader who uses violence and rivalry to overcome Pharaoh. After his death, we'll see Joshua, inspired by mimetic rivalry, to go forth and conquer the land of Canaan. Throughout the book of Judges, we'll see various tribal leaders rise up to deliver Israel from their enemies and employ a spirit of mimetic violence. So here's the thing. Anyone can become that incarnation of mimetic violence. So how can you make a graven image to represent the god of mimetic rivalry? The prohibition against graven images serves as a reminder that mimetic rivalry cannot be confined to a statue or an object. It's something that's in all of us and all our communities. And we have a responsibility to control it and use it in a logical, sensible, safe manner. Third, mimetic desire really is a double-edged sword. Mimetic desire cultivates a spirit of discontent and creative imagination of what could be. In the Exodus narrative, it is the driving force behind Israel's identity, culture, and conception as a nation. Without mimetic desire, we lack the motivation and passion and would never bother striving for anything. While mimetic desire has the ability to unite the community around a common object, it can also destroy the community from within. Think about any community group or charity. All of these organisations unite people under a common cause. But if the group loses focus on this desired object, it can become destroyed from within as mimetic rivalry generates conflict between its members. For these reasons, we need mimetic rivalry, but we must be careful managing it to secure its blessings while avoiding the destruction it can bring. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.